Hello, and welcome to the Story Wagon Podcast, where we talk about life, story, and spiritual health. I am your host, Chaplain Jose Martinez, and you can learn more about this podcast at our website, storywagon.org. You can also show us your support on our Patreon page so that we can continue to host this podcast and create resources that help our communities develop good spiritual health. Welcome. Today we have uh, a guest by the name of Pastor Courtney Armento. Uh, She is an activist, uh, she's a pastor, um, and she deals in the work of domestic and intimate partner violence. And she co-authored a recent resolution for the Disciples of Christ. She is a Disciples of Christ minister, and she co-authored this resolution called GA 1928. And we will get into that, what that means for us in the rest of the world, what that means. So without further ado, Courtney, thank you for coming. Thank you, Jose, for having me. I'm so excited to be on the story wagon. It's so cool. Thank you. Well, thank you for coming. Um, Courtney, can you tell us a little bit about your story? Tell us about you. Okay. Um, a little bit about me. I, uh, I have always had some sort of nature that people are drawn to, that um, people come to me looking for a spiritual direction. Mm-hmm. And it is as early as in my early 20s, when I was working as a front office manager in West Hollywood, California. Um, Individuals in my employee, like I I had a staff of, I don't know, 13 people. And they just always came to me for advice or direction and they just were open and vulnerable in a space with me, Mm -hmm. right? And I really didn't understand what that was all about at that time, but I got a nudge in my spirit um, at about age 25. And yeah, you guys don't know that I'm not 25, but <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. Um, the, the nudge in my spirit was telling me that I was supposed to, my life was supposed to benefit others, mm. right? And at that particular time, a lot had happened in my life. So I thought, I was interpreting, I'm supposed to sell everything at this particular point and move to Europe, pack, pack around, and write a screenplay about my life. Mm-hmm. I sold everything that I owned and I started making the move towards Europe, but I landed in Chicago where my family is and where I was born and raised. Um, and I ended up getting married and having children. Mm-hmm. And so I ended up staying in Chicago for like 26 years. Wow. Yeah. Um, during that time though, at every position that I had, the same thing was happening. I was literally pastoring on the job, but not really knowing that that's what I was doing. Mm. And then I got another nudge in my spirit that said, you're supposed to go to seminary. And I said, you can't mean me. And I was looking around the room like, who are you talking to? Mm -hmm. (laughs) That message was for the person behind me. And so um, it became more clear, but it took me a few years to get there. Mm -hmm. Um, I left for seminary, January 2016. I've recently graduated and now um, doing the work. But it's interesting, at every juncture, I knew that it's really my life story, what's happened in my life, that is sort of propelling me into my ministry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you've used this term spirit or spiritual. Um, can you give us a definition of your term for spirit? What, what does spirit mean or spiritual mean for you? 
It's the relationship with God, mm. quite simply. Jesus, God, you know, Holy mm. Spirit, mm-hmm. all working in tandem, mm-hmm. right? And there's like this ability to connect deeply with this loving spirit, mm-hmm. right? Um, there was a period in my life um, where it became clear to me that God is always talking, but I didn't cultivate the space to listen. Mm-hmm. And so I began to shut down all the noise in my life, mm-hmm. which was television, movies, music, which I love more than almost, well, I don't know. <laughs> I love it a lot. Okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I shut down everything so that I could hear. Mm-hmm. And the most amazing thing started happening in my life. I literally was hearing what the next step was, what I was supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I live my life that way now. Okay. Like I don't make a move without like cultivating that space, getting quiet, giving God the space to, to lead my next steps. Mm-hmm. And that's the way life works well for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so how does um, your spiritual um, movement lead you into the work that you're doing today? Like, can you tell us a little bit about your work and how you got there? The migration of my work. The interesting thing is, um, as a child, I was in a home that um, was affected by domestic violence. Okay. Yeah, I'm three or four years old at my grandparents' house, and my father, my uncle, my grandfather, my grandmother, they were all passionate about getting their point across, mm. right? And they were, each one of them were right. Right. And they would not back down. And so it was like a yelling match mm. for them to like communicate with each other. And as a three or four year old, you really don't get what's happening. Mm-hmm. It's actually traumatic, right? Right. Um, and so I, my life sort of had that trajectory um, as, a, as a child, witnessing domestic violence, physical um, and emotional. Um, and so, Sometimes, like before I went to seminary, I knew that there were a few passions that I had, social justice issues, mm-hmm. one of which was um, housing insecurity, the other food insecurity, but domestic violence was always the thing, right? And in seminary, it just became clear that do this, this work, and you will actually affect the other aspects because if we tackle domestic and intimate partner violence mm-hmm. and really make a shift, in the cultural landscape of the acceptance and the normative um, acceptance of domestic violence, we can actually affect housing insecurity, Mm. uh, food insecurity, financial insecurity, and a plethora of other emotional issues if we can just tackle this thing. Right. Yeah. Yeah, so I I like what you're saying because um, we, at StoryWagon, we're trying to help people see the holistic side of health. So the financial health, the mental health, the emotional health, um, the occupational wellness and health. Um, so to me, the spiritual health aspect, so that's what we're focusing on, interlaces in between all those, you know, those different domains of health and wellness. And to me, it's like domestic violence is not only like a social justice issue, but it's also a spiritual health issue. Yes. Right. Yeah. So um, yes. I could see where the trauma could come in, and we we talk about moral injury and connection with trauma. Yes. I mean, when I'm saying this, what what do you think about 
that kind of perspective. That's absolutely true. Uh, some of the things that happen when a, an individual is a, a victim of domestic or intimate partner violence, it's psychological, mm -hmm. right? It's emotional. It chips away at what you believe about yourself. Mm -hmm. And it chips away at your sense of agency, mm -hmm. your sense of worth and value. Mm -hmm. The thing about reclaiming that is becoming tethered, tethered to God. Mm -hmm. Being tethered to God gives you a sense of your intrinsic worth and value. Mm -hmm. And you get a sense of who you are. But they ha there has to be space to connect with it. And in a violent situation, you can't connect with that. Right. You can't even find the space mm -hmm. to get a handle on that intrinsic worth and value. Mm -hmm. You talked about moral injury. Children that witness domestic violence suffer from moral injury right. because they can't do anything about the violence. Mm -hmm. They just are a witness to it. And so thank you for bringing that up. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. Because, um, you know, one of the things about moral injury, especially if you're the bystander or the witness of an act, and especially a child, if they see their father, uh, who's supposed to be protector of the family, mm -hmm. beat on the mother or the, a spouse who's the nurturer of the family, there's a sense of betrayal. Yes. There's a sense of just insecurity and isolation and alienation which is a hallmark of uh, moral injury and so they carry that through and then oftentimes I tell like tra trauma it's intergenerational moral injury yes. is intergenerational and in that the child may perhaps be become a perpetrator or maybe become the victim of a similar situation and so you know getting these issues out and talking about moral injury talking about spiritual health helps the healing process to uh, interrupt that cycle of violence. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, you said something, and I, I want to try to rem <coughs> excuse me, remember exactly what it was that I wanted to launch in on. Um, I don't know that I'm going to catch it right here, but yes, we have to interrupt it. Um, and the way to do that really is to make a shift in our cultural normative acceptance. Mm. Right, and mm -hmm. so that's why I authored the resolution. Right. Okay. Um, GA nineteen twenty eight, a call to see and respond to the crisis of domestic and intimate partner violence is the whole title mm -hmm. of this resolution, and what it asks for, quite simply, is for education and for us to bring the conversation of domestic and intimate partner violence into the church, into the Christian life. How do we bring? this conversation to life and educate people. There are times that individuals are unaware that they're in a toxic relationship. Mm. A lot of people don't understand that. Mm -hmm. the, the, the problem with like really dealing with domestic and intimate partner violence is the fact that people do not understand the dynamics. It's extremely complex, it's extremely layered, right? And it affects so many people. It, it's a pandemic public health crisis. Mm. The CDC calls it a public health crisis, mm -hmm. right? So we don't talk about it. We don't talk about it in church. We don't talk about it in our communities. What happens when it is talked about is that it's either glossed over or it's mocked. Right? Right. Uh -huh. Stand-up comedians are actually using domestic violence as part of their bit and the audiences just laugh. It's not funny. Mm. Nothing about it is funny. It's very painful and it's insidious. People who abuse are insidious. They're stealth. 
Mm-hmm. They can be charismatic and loved by the community. Mm-hmm. And nobody would ever guess what's happening at home to their spouse or their children. Mm. Right? Mm. And so what I'm asking for in this resolution really is just to bring the conversation and awareness, to bring resources into the church, to preach responsibly about domestic and intimate partner violence. The Bible is rife with stories, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Do Bible studies. Create space for people to come forward. The moment that I said, domestic and intimate partner violence is my cornerstone of ministry, it gave people the comfort level to come to me and say, it's happened to me. Mm -hmm. If we don't ever create that space, People are sitting in churches and communities dealing with this every single day. And it's like we can see them, but we can't see their pain. Mm -hmm. They're hiding in plain sight, Mm -hmm. right? And so we're asking for to up-level the conversation, right? We're asking for um, education for youth. And I think that's the most important piece of this Mm -hmm. because I want to shift the culture to the point that youth and young adults are averse to being abused. Mm -hmm. They can make a conscious choice because they are aware of the red flags, because they're aware of unhealthy relationship dynamics. They can opt out of these relational contracts that are harmful. They can see within three red flag offenses, someone can say, yep, that's not for me. Mm -hmm. But if they don't know what they are, they can't make that choice. Right. And when they are growing up in that situation, they don't know that that's not a healthy way to relate to people. Mm-hmm. And so we have to educate. And so clergy need to be educated, laity need to be educated, and we need to create space in the community. And I think it's really important to create space for lament. Oh, yeah. We have coffee hour, right? Mm-hmm. And everybody's happy and it's social but we don't create space for lament, and that's biblical, mm-hmm. right? How do we process the pain? I was really literally in front of a pastor, and I cried, tears coming out of my eyes, and he recoiled from me. Mm. He didn't know how to handle tears. Oh my gosh. What does that say to me? Mm-hmm. I need to get myself together. I can't cry in public. I can't do this, right? No, that's not the way it should be. We really ought to be able to hold space with people that are hurting. Right and find ways of like healing and, and um, tethering them to God and community. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the question might come up is if a person's listening to this um, and they're not Christian, uh, how do you bring about this conversation about, uh, to me, I call God the divine, the mm-hmm. sacred, like I could see like trying to have the conversation of tethering a person to the sacred yes. um, um, but what do you how do you bring this conversation about if the person's not of a Christian faith mm-hmm. or they might be atheist or, or things how does that conversation look like it looks like this the, the biggest thing is to tether to oneself mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. when we tether to ourself in the quiet if we take space to just listen right it, it may look like meditation it may look like a walk in nature it may look like conversation quiet conversation with a friend, but some way of really connecting to the core of who we are. Mm -hmm. At that point, we can begin to realize that we're valuable. Mm -hmm. We can begin to realize that we deserve 
better. Right. We deserve healthy relationships. Nature takes care of itself, right? It re-flourishes. It, it, there's a cycle that happens in nature that's very, um, syn- there's synchronicity. The same synchronicity happens within ourselves, mm-hmm. right? If we can just tune in to the, the, the core of who we are, mm-hmm. there's a vibrancy. There's a call inside of us also, like telling us what is actually good for us, what's, what's best, right? And if we can listen to that, we can hear and navigate our way forward. Mm-hmm. And and if um, and if I'm a person that I've never experienced domestic violence or you know I'm not recognizing it or what have you, but I have a friend or a a person that I see that it's in a situation that's toxic and harmful, how do you coach that person through to to allow them to step in and not just be the bystander and be a person a, an advocate or an ally of that person who's being abused? Great question. I'm glad you asked it. Um, there are several things. The most important thing is to never judge, is to never um, judge the partner, the situation, or the person. Mm-hmm. The biggest thing that happens with victims is that they're blamed and shamed. Mm. There's a big stigma associated with being a victim or a survivor of abuse. Uh, yeah, of abuse. Um, and so we want to create a space of non-judgment, compassion, and care. Mm. A space where people can feel heard and affirmed. Mm. Because I don't know if you've, you know, I'm sure you've noticed that the Me Too movement took a long time for victims to be believed. It had to be in droves where people came forward and said, this is happening to me, right? right? The same platform does not exist for domestic violence. There is no platform for people to come forward and say, this is happening to me. Mm-hmm. I'm hoping to create a platform. Mm-hmm. But to come alongside someone who's dealing with abuse, the first thing to do is to listen, mm-hmm. to affirm, right? We don't ever want to take their agency away and tell them what to do, mm-hmm. right? But we can direct them to resources. We can direct them, we can share with them maybe what red flags are, you know? Um, we can <clears throat> we can give them support and help them see what's happening by just offering that resource aspect. Okay. Um, they really need to come to it themselves. And the other part of domestic violence is it takes it's very hard to walk away. It's very complex, mm-hmm. and people are walking away from their whole life. Sometimes they have children. Sometimes they have no financial resources. So leaving is not the, the first option. People have to strategize. And the highest possibility of fatality in a domestic situation is when an individual tries to leave. Mm-hmm. So their safety is of the utmost importance. Mm-hmm. And so strategizing is really important, but you have to take time to walk with them and see where they are in that process, if they're even at that place. And it also takes seven to nine times for an individual to actually leave for good. Mm-hmm. Because there's a biochemical connection mm-hmm. with an abuser, between an abused and an abuser. Mm-hmm. There's a biochemical cocktail that happens in the brain 
that takes a person on highs and lows, what's like being addicted to drugs, right? right? A lot of people don't know that. Uh And so when an individual thinks about leaving or wants to leave and their partner gets wind of it, they do this thing called hoovering. Hoovering. And they try to pull out all the stops and convince them that they're sorry, it won't happen again, they're gonna get help, they're gonna take steps to be better. Mm And a lot of times, victims want to believe the best of their partner. Right. And there's love there. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it could be the absolute best relationship and the absolute worst. Mm-hmm. And so people are always leaning into the best, right? right. Domestic violence and re- inter- intimate partner violence um, creates a great deal of cognitive dissonance mm-hmm. where there are two opposing things happening and the person has to make a choice because it's mentally painful to be in tension with good and bad. Mm-hmm. We have to make a choice. We have to pick a side. Right. And so sometimes for safety, we pick the side of good. Uh, and it's subconscious, right? We're not really fully aware of the dynamic that's happening mm-hmm. in the brain to try to make sense of this chaos that's happening around us. Wow. Wow, <laughs> that's a lot to to take in. Cognitive dissonance. I mean, and can you explain a little bit more about the cognitive dissonance part for the for the individual? You know, you're saying it's very painful for them to pick a side of good and bad. You know, uh, how do you help that person to, you know, get the full perspective of the situation that they're in? You know, you're you're talking about you know keeping them safe, keeping them having agency. Um, things like that uh, what is this the, you know do you believe like in this concept of like a tough love type deal like no putting that the truth out there not really mm-hmm. no I mean you can say you know this relationship doesn't seem to be healthy for you you mm-hmm. don't seem to be happy mm-hmm. I don't see you thriving what do you, what is happening that maybe has you feeling that way do you do you feel that way I mean you have to draw it out gently mm-hmm it's a very, very sensitive scope, landscape. It's very, very, um, it has to be traversed carefully and gently. Mm-hmm. And they're already being told what to do and what not to do. Micromanagement is one aspect of being abused, mm-hmm. right? So somebody's already telling them what to do, what not to do. What you want to do is cultivate the space for them to make the choice, mm-hmm. right? So you can ask questions. Right. How do you feel? What's happening? See if you can cultivate the space where they feel comfortable enough to share with you. One of the things, like I said, that helps me cultivate space immediately is to say that this is my ministry. Immediately. But if in our churches we are preaching about it, we're doing Bible study on it, speakers are coming in, we're cultivating the space. Mm -hmm. What I really want to be sure about is that our leaders are sensitively trained to respond appropriately. Mm with that gentle care, with a heightened sense of compassion, the ability to listen and walk with them, not tell them what to do. Mm -hmm. That is never okay. We want to cultivate a sense of their own empowerment. Mm. And so we can bring in empowerment courses, lectures, workshops, events. We can do all kinds of things to to bolster their self of... um, their sense of self-agency and worth. Right. And that's where we need to be doing the work and creating space where they feel comfortable enough to trust us to tell us. Now, if they tell us something significant, 
they're in danger, they're in harm's way, they're hurting, they want to leave, then we can get more active. Right. We have to create the space, though, for them to navigate to that point. So, <clears throat> so let's say we get the person to that point and they're ready to go. Um, is there like a national hotline? Is there something that, you know, I, I know in Kansas City we have lots of different shelters and things like that. Um, what, what can a faith community do to help that person in that situation? Thank you for that question. <laughs> Part of the resolution ask is that churches put on their websites the resources for domestic violence, locally and nationally. What individuals don't know is that shelters will actually help people that are not living in the shelter. Mm -hmm. So anyone can go to a shelter and get assistance, counseling, free counseling, uh, free safety planning, free legal advice, all the strategies for leaving in a way that helps them flourish instead of end up in a homeless situation. Many times women end up in a, a homeless situation with their children and in shelters. If we can curtail this epidemic, we can drastically hit homelessness, right? And food insecurity. If we can just get people on the front end to realize about toxic relationships. Mm -hmm. But back to what you were asking. Yes, there are national hotlines. On my website is also the list of national um, hotline numbers, all the way down to teen intervention national hotlines. Okay. Teen violence is happening. One in three teens are dealing with intimate partner violence. That's amazing. Can you believe that? Uh, right. And our music perpetuates it. Okay. Comedy perpetuates it. Yeah. It's in our films, and there's never a disclaimer to say that this is not okay. Mm -hmm. They just put it out there. Right. And they don't always handle it well. And of course, in comedy and music, it's a free-for-all. One of my favorite songs, you know, I listened to, I had to listen to again, and I said, wait a minute, this is not okay. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to put the guy on blast, but the song says, if there are boundaries, I will try to knock them down. Mm. That's not okay. Our boundaries keep us safe. Right. Right. In the music video, there's a little face that pops up on the characters and the in, uh, the actors in the video. To me, that is the sign of the mask that abusers wear, mm. right? They present one way, and then there's a shift, and they are actually, their true self is harmful and dangerous. Mm. And so this whole video scene, I'm, I said, wow, this is too much. And people are missing it. I was dancing to the song, blasting it, singing it in my car. And then I realized this is not okay. Right. So we have to really pay attention to what we're listening to, what our teens are listening to, what they're watching. Because if we're not careful, it's lulling them into the comfort of this is what love looks like. Mm. Yeah. Wow. There's so much in there. It's so subversive. It is. It is extremely subversive. Wow. And it has the sway. It's the, the, the normative, you know, conversation of the day that it's okay mm. to be in a harmful relationship. Wow. It's really not. Well, Courtney, thank you so much for being here. We're close to the time. So um, before we go, though, if, if there's a person out there um, and they want to get in contact with you, what, what are some ways that they can contact you? So I have a website. It's, you know, not really developed out so that it's, you know, fully loaded with 52 pages mm -hmm. there are two pages right, right. 
The website is called tetheredone.org, okay. and it's the number one. Okay. Um, on that page in the support section, if you read down to the bottom, there's a place where my bio is. Okay. There's a link for my bio. There you can find a phone number and an email address to contact me. Okay. But all of the resources that I was talking about today are listed. There are apps out there that support individuals that are dealing with um, domestic and intimate partner violence. Wow. They're listed on my site. That's so awesome. Yeah, for pastors that are out there that want to know what they can do, the resolution is on my site. There is actually 100 sermons already prepared for domestic and intimate partner violence. There's a link to those sermons. Mm. So there's a, it's, it's packed full of information. Mm -hmm. and, and people can contact you if, to give seminars. You give seminars? I do. I do workshops. I can go um, to churches or secular communities and uh, teach and educate youth and adults around healthy relationships, boundaries, and abuse. Wow. Oh, thank you so much, Courtney, for being here. And uh, we, if we get more requests, we might have a part two on this, you know? Sounds <laughs> like a plan. There's so much content. Right. Like, I could go on for weeks. Right. But yes, I would love that. And thank you for having me. All right. Thank you very much, Courtney. And I want to give other thanks to different people out there. I want to give thanks to Sam Billen uh, for providing the music for this podcast. You can get in contact with him if you're interested in his music at uh, primarycolormusic.com. I also want to thank the National Benevolence Association who gave us the grant to help us start this podcast. You can also reach them at the nbacares.org. And ultimately, I want to thank you, the listener. Thank you for supporting this podcast by listening. Uh, I invite you to support us uh, on our Patreon page. Type in StoryWagon. Story that's S-T-O-R-Y-W-A-G-E-N. So with that note, this is Chaplain Jose Martinez wishing you good spiritual health.